welcome to the March 2019 podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. I'm Kelly Tappenden, Editor-in-Chief of JPEN and Professor and Head of Nutrition and Kinesiology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. My guest today is Dr. Hayland, who is Professor of Medicine at Queen's University and the Principal Investigator of the EFWIRT trial. Welcome, Dr. Hayland. Hi, Kelly. Thank you. The paper, for those of you who want to follow along in the March issue, is entitled The Effect of Higher Protein Dosing in Critically Ill Patients, a Multicenter Registry-Based Randomized Trial, the EFFORT Trial. Now, for as long as I can remember, and I mean that quite sincerely, how much protein to feed critically ill patients has been debated. And one of the leading experts in this area is Dr. Halen. Please tell us about the multi-institutional group that you have authoring this paper and the background on the effort trial. Sure, and I appreciate your introductory comments about how long this has been an open question. It's interesting that as an ICU society, um, we surveyed members and uh, to their research priorities in the nutrition space, and figuring out this protein question remains one of the top priorities you know, for us as a critical care community. And so I pulled together some of my colleagues from across North America, particularly those associated with Aspen. Charlene Comfer, as the past president, has been our co my co-principal investigator, and developed this protocol to examine this question of what is the, you know, optimal protein dose, or said a little bit differently, does giving more protein than what we're currently doing actually improve patient outcomes. Okay, very good. And there's others that look to be from many other institutions too. Um, how did you pull the team together? Well, as uh, listeners might know, I have a web-based uh, critical care nutrition network, uh, criticalcarenutrition.com, and we've had a public-facing face that has engaged lots of dietitians and nutrition specialists around the world and historically have been running an international nutrition survey or an international nutrition audit. And so uh, I have connections to other institutions that are interested in both defining and improving and understanding what our nutrition practices are, particularly in North America. And so I reached out to interested parties and said, hey, can we collaborate and transform the way we're auditing uh, this usual practice to develop this, what, what I call a registry-based randomized trial that is nested within this you know, usual uh, international nutrition survey. Okay, very good. So how did you approach this question? What did you do? Well, I guess we started with you know, the results of the audit, the results of the international nutrition survey, which over the years has continued to show tremendous variability in how uh, dietitians or physicians are prescribing nutrition anywhere from 0.5 grams per kilogram per day up to 3.8 grams per kilogram per day. And I'm sure listeners can imagine, you know, different case scenarios where, you know, they'd be aiming low or aiming high, depending on patient characteristics. But when we, when we take that observed variation and then we contrast that with the literature, which is summarized in the JPEN paper, there's a lot of conflicting signals in the observational study. There's observational studies that suggest harm, 
by prescribing higher amounts of protein. And there's observational studies that uh, suggest benefit, that we save lives and uh, result in less infections, less in complications, and better uh, physical recovery six, 12 months later. And, and the, unfortunately, the randomized trials or the body of literature from randomized trials is really weak and insufficient, doesn't really answer the question. So we felt this is needing further work and said, okay, well, if we know what usual care is, and that's somewhere around, you know, patients being prescribed 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilogram per day. And remember, they only get about 50 to 60% of what's being prescribed. So if that's usual care, let's try and create a intervention group where we clearly see a separation in the dose of protein prescribed. And so we landed in a higher dosed group where they're being prescribed 2.2 grams per kilogram per day or more, depending on the clinician. And I want to stress that this is a trial of the protein prescription. We're not randomizing people to different products, different feeding protocols, and nutritional strategies. It's simply the healthcare practitioner, be it a dietitian or a physician or a nurse specialist or, or whoever, whoever's doing that assessment and prescription is being constrained by the push of a button, you know, or a randomization system to prescribe a higher dose versus a lower dose. And what's unique about this trial is that it is, in fact, research on medical practice. It's saying, okay, this is the variation we observed within medical practice. And so let's now use a randomization feature to randomize practitioners to, to either stick with usual care or shoot for a higher amount. But how they achieve that, we're not interfering with you know, usual clinical care with the exception of the protein uh, prescription. And that has allowed us to, um, in most settings, achieve uh, being able to do this trial with a waiver of informed consent because it's, it meets those criteria. It's very minimal risk research when you're just, you know, doing research in usual care. Okay, that's really interesting. How do you account then for the variation amongst these units around the world? You know, some practices based on different units could be simply better at getting more protein or more of the prescribed nutrition into the patient versus others, right? There's also then differences in the standard of care uh, amongst the different sites. How, how will you account for that? Yeah, that's a very astute question, Kelly. And I'm going to give you a philosophical and a statistical answer. One of the limitations of many published randomized controlled trials is that they are explanatory in nature. They are highly controlled. They standardize X, Y, and Z, and the patients that get into these trials are selected. And that, that works to the advantage of seeing a signal of treatment benefit relative to the noise of all that variation you're describing. But it, it's a disadvantage when it comes to trying to apply or generalize the results of randomized controlled trials to the world, to the, world, just to the different settings. That, that we're worried about that variation. And so philosophically, we're erring on the side of maximizing generalizability by including sites from different settings with different treating protocols, different standards of care 
And therefore, if we see a signal, it will be maximally generalizable to the world's community, critical care nutrition community, which is super cool. Now, statistically speaking, because we accept that um, there's going to be a lot of variability, you know, we stratify by site so that that noise is distributed within a site between the two groups that are uh, randomized in this trial. And we accept that the signal relative to the noise is going to be small. That's why we have a sample size of 4,000 patients. We need 4,000 patients to be able to see that signal um, through the noise of all that variability. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, and I agree, it's super cool. The uh, fact, though, that you're going to stratify by site is one of the reasons why you need 4,000 patients, right? Can you tell us about the stats that you're planning to use to be able to cut through all this noise? Uh, and how are you going to be able to look statistically at the difference in, you know, just how, how sick these, these patients are? What will you do statistically? Well, I mean, statistically, we have to come up with an idea of what the expected event rate is in the control group and what the uh, expected reduction in that event rate. Now, our primary outcome for this trial is 60-day mortality. And, you know, we observe, uh, you know, across years of doing um, this international audit of usual care, of real practice, not some constrained or artificial or select experience like we see in randomized controlled trials, but in usual care, we see about a, a, an event rate of 25% mortality um, across, you know, these patients that are being fed in our, mechanically ventilated patients being fed in our ICU. So um, we're, we're aiming to see a small signal, which is a 13% relative risk reduction now, some might argue, well, that's still, that's still big, but, you know, it's actually smaller than what most ICU trials are powered to look at. So we have adequate power to see, you know, a reduction by an absolute difference of 4% or a relative difference of 13%. Uh, and that means it requires, you know, 4,000 patients. So the 60-day mortality rate as the primary outcome is a pretty big outcome, right? Um, how yep. do you select that? Given there's so few randomized controlled trials in the literature, how, you know, are they all looking at this? How do you feel comfortable to use that as, as your endpoint? Well, you know, let me start by saying I, I don't think 60-day mortality is the only important outcome in this protein story. In other studies that we're involved in, we're very much leading the way in trying to uh, evaluate defective nutritional intake or protein intake in particular on functional outcomes, um, functional outcomes such as six-minute walk tests or quality of life or activities of daily living. So first of all, I just, that has to be said that there are other important outcomes that are important to the story. Now, because this is the kind of trial that's nested in real practice where we're appealing for a waiver of consent, where we're not monkeying with anything but the prescription, we don't really have the capacity to do additional measures, additional outcomes, than those that are codified in the medical record. So, so mortality, length of stay, duration of mechanical ventilation, those are you know, our outcomes. We have 
used our international data set, which is now very large, and done a lot of associative statistics to show that the more nutrition for every 30 grams a day more of protein that a patient receives, that that's associated with a significant reduction in 60-day mortality. So to say that in the observational level of evidence, we do see a relationship between more protein and a reduction in 60-day mortality. So that, that gives some scientific justification for why we chose that endpoint. Um, another key secondary outcome that we'll be exploring will be time to discharge alive, which is a composite of being alive um, and also being discharged early. And so that's a nice secondary endpoint that will also be clinically and economically important. Okay, very good. That does sound well justified. So with all this in mind, tell us about the timing for the study. Study has started. It started with some Vanguard sites in two, early 2018. As of today, we have about 25 sites around the world activated and enrolling patients. We have about 160 or so patients actually enrolled. We have contacts with dozens of additional sites who are in the queue in that process of, of getting activated, you know, obtaining their ethics approval, getting the local resources necessary to implement the study. I, I should say there's no funding with this trial. It's volunteer-driven, as all our prior international surveys have been. The what's in it for the site is not only to be a part of a super cool international study, but in return for their effort, uh, no pun intended, um, they will receive you know, a benchmark site report that identifies what's happening you know, with their nutritional practices compared to the guidelines, compared to peer sites, so sites in similar geographic regions. And historically, sites have found these benchmark site reports extremely valuable, helpful for them in their quality improvement initiatives. So that's still, that's still part of this, this trial is that participating sites who recruit 30 patients minimum, you know, over the next two to three years, we'll get a benchmark report to help them identify how their practice uh, compares to other settings. And like I said before, that's, that's the reason why in the past, when we've done an international audit, we get more than 200 sites sign up and more than 4,000 patients every year in the observational audits. So that led us to have the confidence to say, hey, we have, there's such a spirit of collaboration in our critical care nutrition community, can we harness that spirit of collaboration to continue the volunteer-driven nature, continue the quality improvement nature of this audit, but add this randomization feature so that we actually, as a community, as a you know, worldwide collaborative, can answer a very, very important question to our community. Yeah, this is a really exciting advancement to what you have done historically. And I know that I've had people from various spots around the world actually mention their audit report and say how they're doing, what it is that they're doing well with what they're working on, that kind of thing. And so I think it is is something that is a little bit of a quality improvement type of, of issue too, um, which which is a really neat way to be able to run a trial like this. I think you should be commended on that. I think it's our community that needs to be commended. Historically, they've manifest this tremendous desire to improve their practice, and that's why they do the audits. 
Now we're, we're changing the culture a little bit and we're trying to instill within our community this idea that they can learn as they go, as they care for their patients, you know, by allowing them to be, themselves to be randomized, they can actually contribute to the growth of an evidence base that will inform future guidelines. And it's been very gratifying to see the response to, to this initiative. Like I said, we've had uh, dozens of ICUs around the world say, oh, that sounds super cool. I want to be a part. And they're, you know, they're working towards uh, getting upregulated. Um, we still got a long ways to go. We're only at 160. We need 4,000. Um, we probably only have, I don't know, 120 sites that are in our queue. Um, part of my interest in you know, talking to you about this paper is to just, again, listeners out there who are working in the critical care nutrition space, we're still open for business. There's still lots of opportunity to engage in this trial. We'll be going for another two to three years. Um, and I would refer you again to our website, www.criticalcarenutrition.com, and you just click on the effort icon and you'll be led to uh, web pages where you can find the protocol and additional instructions on how to get up and running. Okay, very good. And it's quite exciting to hear, you know, that in two or three years, we may have a good quality answer to this question that has existed for so long regarding how much protein, whether it be high or low based on the study to be providing to critical care patients. Again, for those of you who may be interested in participating, Dr. Halen just said, go to www.criticalcarenutrition.com and there you can click on the effort trial button and learn about participating in the trial. And you'll be receiving then part of the bench, uh, benchmark report then uh, if you, you do in fact become a participant that could really provide some useful information on your unit's practice. Dr. Halen, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me about this study uh, and your leadership in this area. Oh, thank you, Kelly. Appreciate it. All right. As just a summary, for those of you who uh, did not hear right from the beginning, the paper you can go read in the March 2019 issue of JPEN is the effect of higher protein dosing in critically ill patients, a multi-center registry-based randomized trial the effort trial. Thanks very much.